0: I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 14. Luke 14, uh, we are looking at the first 14 verses of that chapter this morning. Please give your full attention to the Word of God. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And it's not in your bulletin, but I am going to continue until verse 14. we had a prison ministry that uh, at one point led three different Bible studies in the local prison which was just down the road from our church location. And as we led those Bible studies, we formed relationships with these prisoners and one of these prisoners, I'll call him Joe, after he had served his time and was released from prison, he wanted to start attending services at our church. And he did. But this created a problem for the leadership. Joe had been incarcerated for sexual abuse of a child and so his presence at our worship services created one of the most perplexing dilemmas I honestly have ever faced as a church leader. Understandably, many of our parents and grandparents didn't want this man anywhere near their children or grandchildren. But at the same time Joe needed Jesus Christ. Joe needed to be under the ministry of the Word. Joe needed to be in a fellowship of believers. And so what were we to do? This chapter, chapter 14, takes place in an unlikely context in a dinner party, but it's a dinner party that got very awkward very quickly. It got awkward because there was a clash of values, particularly a clash of values of the kingdom of God that Jesus Christ represented and the clash of the values of the host and the Pharisees and the scribes that were the ones invited to the dinner. And this clash was triggered over the presence of someone that made the respectable people in the community uncomfortable. These, actually there's four sections to this teaching that takes place in the context of this Sabbath dinner. And we're gonna look at three of those today. And Luke is going to recount for us the tension in the room, the conflict that was inherently there between Jesus and his host, Jesus and the other guests, because of the presence of this one man. And as we look at this tension over this week and next week, I think it's gonna be an opportunity for all of us to reassess the relationships in our lives, to reassess the relationships in our church, and to see if our values, reflected in the relationships that we have, reflect the values of the kingdom of God. Jesus, as I said, accepted an invitation to a Sabbath dinner, a dinner on the Sabbath. And he was invited by one that was called a ruler of the Pharisees. And we don't know what that means. He was just maybe the local leader of the synagogue, or maybe he was a member of the Sanhedrin. What we do know from the way that the dinner is described is that he was very prominent, very important, and undoubtedly very wealthy. The Sabbath dinner was probably the biggest dinner of the week for any Jewish family, but particularly a wealthy family like this. It would always be a a large dinner, and it was the time when you invited family and friends and neighbors to come, much like Sunday afternoon dinners are still today for many Christians, but we very quickly in verse one realize that the host and many of the Pharisees and scribes that were invited had an ulterior motive because it says in verse one, Luke tells us they were watching Jesus carefully. They'd invited Jesus, which was the normal thing to do. He was a visiting prominent rabbi, a popular rabbi. And so it was normal for them to invite him to come to this Sabbath dinner, this banquet. But they were watching him very carefully. Why? We know why, if you've been following along in the studies of Luke at all, because they've been watching him all along, looking for something that they could use to accuse him with. Looking for him to say something or to do something that would be something they could say, he's broken the law, he's deserving to die. And so they watched him carefully. Well, the awkward, the awkward moment is triggered when Jesus looks across from him, it says, and he sees a man who's suffering from dropsy. Dropsy is not a term we use anymore. The condition today would be called edema. It's when typically your limbs swell in, in a very uh, pronounced way because an accumulation of fluids and it can be a sign, it isn't necessarily, but it can be a sign of a very serious disease like heart failure, liver failure, kidney failure. And so this man was suffering. It does raise the question why was he there? He, you know, it's possible because Luke has tipped us off that the Pharisees and the scribes were watching Jesus carefully. It's very possible this is a setup that they made sure this man was there so that they could catch Jesus, particularly in healing this man because they knew he had a track record of healing people on the Sabbath. And according to them, healing on the Sabbath was a breaking of the law. And so it's very possible that they made sure he was there as a test for Jesus, a trap, and he was the bait. But we don't know that for sure. It doesn't say that in the text. We're inferring that if that's what we think happened. It's also possible that he was there as a member of the, somebody just from the neighborhood, because as we saw back in chapter seven, remember we saw that Jesus was at a similar dinner at a wealthy home, and a woman guilty of scandalous sin showed up at the dinner, and she came and she washed Jesus' feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and anointed his feet. You know, in that incident we said that she wasn't invited to that dinner, but it wasn't uncommon in an event like that, for people from the neighborhood to come and stand around the dinner. The dinner was in kind of an outdoor uh, covered place and they could stand around and, and listen to the conversation, especially with somebody prominent, a prominent teacher like Jesus there. So it's possible she, that this man was just there as one of those observers to the dinner. But either way, Jesus acknowledging him and Jesus healing him caused a conflict of social values, and that's what we wanna look at today. We saw at the end of chapter 13 last week, the very end of chapter 13, we saw the heart of Jesus, the compassion that Jesus Christ had for the loss, As he cried out, as he contemplated, he was on his way to Jerusalem. And as he contemplated entering that great city, he cried out. And you can sense the grief as he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. The brokenhearted Savior. That is really a theme of the Gospels, isn't it? In John chapter 1, he puts it this way. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. And that's what we see play out during his entire earthly ministry. The arrogant and self-righteous rejected him, but the humble and repentant received him gladly and thereby received the exalted status of being children of God. That continues to be the characteristic of Christ's ministry because it is a characteristic of the kingdom of God, that the humble and the penitent, the needy, the ones who cry out for mercy, they're the ones who met the true Messiah and were welcomed as children into his kingdom. When John the Baptist was in jail and he started to doubt whether Jesus was the Messiah that was promised because his ministry didn't look the way that John expected it to be. Remember what Jesus, the word Jesus sent back to him was, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And poor have good, the poor have good news preached to them. What Jesus was saying is that my ministry looks the way that the prophets promised it would. You remember his first sermon in Nazareth, the very first sermon recorded of Jesus He preached on this passage from Isaiah where Isaiah said, speaking of the coming Messiah, hundreds of years in the future, he said, he has anointed me. This is the Messiah speaking through the prophetic voice of Isaiah. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now we are often quick to qualify that and say the poor, the captive, the oppressed, the blind, the lame, it's speaking primarily of those who are spiritually poor, spiritually blind, spiritually lame, spiritually weak, and that is true. But it is also an undeniable fact that it tends to be those who are literally physically blind, literally physically lame, literally physically poor and materially poor who are the most open. acknowledging their need of a savior are most willing most often most humble to be able to say I need mercy from God and it is the ones who are wealthy that Jesus said only through like a camel going through the eye of a needle do they enter into the kingdom of God it's so hard for a person who is naturally in a worldly sense successful popular attractive Prideful to come into the kingdom of God. It can happen by the grace of God and thank God for so many of us prideful people that are successful in this world that, that, that he does make a way. But it's usually the broken people that are most receptive to the message that they need a savior. So let me ask, do we represent his ministry well? Do we as a church and do we as individual represent the heart of Christ and the kingdom of God Well, Well, first, we must ask the question, how do we view those in need? How do we view those that in the eyes of the world are considered weak and vulnerable and disabled and oppressed? How do we view somebody like this man who was suffering from dropsy? It's interesting. Verse 3, it says, Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees. The wording there is interesting because they hadn't said anything to him, at least not that's recorded. What does it mean they responded when he wasn't, there's no record of him actually responding to something they said to him? Well, as we've seen Jesus, he's responding to what he sees in their hearts. He knows what they're thinking. He knows their thoughts. And he responds to that desire to get him, that desire to take him down. He responds to it by saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? They didn't expect him to test them. They were trying to test him, but he turned the tables. He says, do you consider it a sin to heal on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? According to the teaching of the rabbis, the Jewish rabbis, the traditional way in which the law of God was interpreted according to the teaching of the rabbis, that Yes, it was breaking the law to heal on the Sabbath. The only time that you could intervene to try to help to care for somebody who was sick, who was injured, was if their life was in immediate danger. Otherwise, no matter what the circumstance, you had to wait until the Sabbath was over. So if they were to answer according to their own tradition and their own rabbinic teaching, then they would say, yes, it is a breaking of the law to heal on the Sabbath, but their problem was the Old Testament law nowhere said that. Matter of fact, the Old Testament law clearly allows for caring for animals, let alone human beings made in the image of God in a time of crisis on the Sabbath. There's no law forbidding the caring for the sick or healing on the Sabbath. As a matter of fact, sabbath laws as you look at sabbath laws as a whole and you understand what the purpose of the sabbath was it was all about celebrating deliverance it was all about being released from captivity it's about resting in the promise of god and so what better way to celebrate the sabbath than to heal to care for the sick Jesus healed people on the Sabbath. We have a record. Now, we don't know everything Jesus did, but we have a record in the Gospels of Jesus healing somebody on the Sabbath seven times, five of them here in the Gospel according to Luke. He seemed to purposely heal on the Sabbath because it fulfilled the purpose, the meaning of the Sabbath. Well, you can see that the Pharisees and the scribes, they're in a dilemma because they won't answer him. They were cowards they unwilling to say what they wanted to say because he knew, they knew that Jesus had them on the horns of a dilemma. And so in response to their silence, Jesus turns and he heals the man completely of his dropsy He made him completely well. Interestingly, at that point, he sends him away. I'm not sure why. It's possible he sent him away because he wasn't invited in the first place, or if he was invited in the first place, he sends him away because he is no longer welcome because he had, he had failed in the purpose that the scribes and the Pharisees had him there for. But then Jesus drives home his point more deeply. He asks them another question. He says, if your son or your ox fell into a well on the Sabbath, would you work to get him or it out? And the answer that they couldn't answer, they didn't answer again. They sat there with their mouths closed. Why? Because obviously they would. Any one of them, if one if one of their sons fell into a well Would do whatever it took to get him out. Even if they one of their favorite, most valuable parts of their livestock were to fall into a well, they would do whatever it took to get him out. And so they sit there with a mouth shut because Jesus has exposed their selfish motivation. He's exposed their hearts. They didn't care about this man with dropsy at all. He was there as a prop reminds me of so many debates that i hear out in the public arena about how to care for the poor how to care for the sick how to care for the disabled everybody's debating about it but the disabled people the hurt people the oppressed people the the unjustly treated people whoever they're debating about are just data points they're just illustrations they're not people made in the image of god We need to care. We represent the kingdom of God. We need to care for those people. We need to see them in three dimensions. We need to see them fully as sinners like us, yes, but broken by the results of the fall and as much in need of the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit and the the power of the gospel as we do. The agenda of Christ's kingdom is to proclaim good news to the poor and liberty to the captives. To see the needs. And to respond as Christ would have us respond. Which brings us to the second way that we need to be different in our relationships in the church and in our individual lives. is not only do we need to see, truly see those people in need, but we need to meet them where they are. And that second part of the dinner party, it begins in verse 7 and goes through verse 11. It says, Jesus observes a dynamic going on in that dinner party that the invited guests were all angling for the best seats at the dinner. A little bit of background on that, the way that dinners were set up in that day is typically they would have a table, a low table, a table low to the floor. They like sitting very low to eat their meals and they'd have a table and then around that there would be a U-shaped uh, made up of couches low couches and the most honored person at the dinner party would be seated at the center of that U if you could imagine a U the, the most honored place would be at the center of that U and then honor was bestowed upon the 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 those invited to the feast they were just, it, it was all in relation to that that central seat of the most honored person. So on the left would be the most honored person, on the right would be the second most honored person, and and so on around that U. The lowliest person, the least respected person would sit at the ends of the U. Those would be the lowest seats. We had, uh, when I was a kid, the only version of that I remember when I was a kid was when uh, dad would say, get in the car, we're gonna go for a drive first thing you always heard was i got shotgun because that was the best seat in the car whoever said it first that's the way the rule worked whoever said it first got to sit in the best seat in the car i never once remember hearing anybody say you get shotgun <laughs> until i became a pastor you know what one of the things i want to say to commend the other pastors in the office here at oakwood we have to make a 2 or 3 hour trip to presbytery meetings quite often and when we go to get in the car, we all drive down in the same car, they fight. These pastors actually fight over who doesn't get to sit in the front seat of the car. They, they, they try to force each other to sit in the front seat of the car. In order to understand what a sacrifice that is, look around at your pastor sometime. We're all over six foot. We have a six foot minimum when it comes to hiring around here. <laughs> and so sitting in the back seat is a real sacrifice with those long legs. But that's the way it should be in the kingdom of God. You get shotgun. I'll take the back seat. I'll sit with my knees and my chin because I care about you. Well, Jesus responds by this selfish, self-promotion dynamic that's going on at the dinner party by telling a parable about a wedding feast. And it's interesting, he points out it's a wedding feast he's talking about because wedding feasts had more stringent rules and more rules than a typical Sabbath dinner. He presents a scenario where one particular ambitious guest sneaks his way into one of the honored seats near the bride and the groom. But then, somebody who is truly distinguished shows up late, fashionably late, I'm sure, to the wedding feast. And so the host is obligated to take this distinguished guest and put him in the seat where he belongs, but there, lo and behold, one of these undistinguished persons is sitting there. And so what he does is he says, sir, you gotta get up. go find another seat, because this person should be sitting here, and so where does he go? He, he doesn't have another seat, probably, except the lowest seat, because this guy came late, so that means every other seat was taken, so he has to take the lowest seat at the end of the U. Probably sitting next to that obnoxious third cousin that won't stop talking, or maybe to sit at the kids' table. I don't know, but wherever the lowest place is, that's where this guy ends up, and the whole picture is that of humiliation public humiliation and so Jesus says don't be like that go sit with the kids table go sit next to that obnoxious third cousin go take the lowest seat and then you'll be honored when the host comes and says oh no you shouldn't be sitting over there you should be sitting here in a place of higher honor now, it sounds like Jesus is giving worldly advice. Sounds like something you'd get in, like, how, you know, if somebody wrote a book called uh, How to Influence Friends or, you know, Win Friends and Influence People, something like that, you know, how to get ahead in society, you know, pretend that you're really humble so that people, you know, honor you, you know, to try to get honor in this world. That's not what Jesus is saying. Lest you wonder if that's really his point. In verse 11, he makes his point really clear. He says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. If self-promotion is what your life is about, then you're going to be greatly humbled when all, is called, all are called to an account. But if humbling yourself is your desire, what he's saying is you should be going and sitting with the lowliest people because that's where, that's where citizens of the kingdom of God want to be. They want to be where people are needy. They want to be where people are rejected by society. They want to be where people are humble and willing to acknowledge their need, willing to hear about Jesus Christ, willing to hear about the gospel. Because society has not honored them. Proverbs 29 verse 23 says, One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. That's a life principle, and if you live by that, it's going to change the way you relate to people, I guarantee it. You need to not only see people in need, but you have to be willing to meet them where they are. Go where the lowly people are. Quite honestly, much of my life, especially because I work with Christians, with other pastors, with church staff, and with Christians from the church. Most of the time, I have very little natural opportunity to interact with people that are really broken and struggling and poor and oppressed and treated unjustly in the world. I have less exposure than the vast majority of you do. But the kingdom of God should drive us to where those people are. See them and meet them where they are that you might truly know them and have a real relationship with them as other sinners made in the image of God. Self-exaltation is counterproductive in Christ's kingdom. Christ lays out for us the way to honor. When James and John, through their mother, approached him about having the best seats in his kingdom, Jesus said, are they willing to drink the cup of suffering? Are they willing to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Are they willing to deny themselves in order to serve others? That's the way to honor and glory in his kingdom. The way to honor and glory in kingdom is to love God and love your neighbor yourself. Love God by obeying Christ as Lord and doing what he commands and love your neighbor by putting their needs first. That's the way to honor. I mean, I know you know, I'm gonna read a passage for you, you've heard so many times if you've been a Christian for very long that you're gonna kind of tune me out. Don't do that because that's very much the point of Philippians chapter two. Listen to what Paul says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Jesus saw our need and he met us in our need to the point where he actually took our sins upon himself at the cross and died in our place. How did God respond to that kind of kingdom love and concern and care? Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is the ethic of the kingdom. That is the value of the kingdom to live the way the gospel teaches us to live. Christ saved us in that way so that we can live that way in the world. It has huge implications for how we pursue relationships. Are we angling like these guests were at the Sabbath dinner party? Are we angling for acceptance among the honored guests, those that are beautiful in the world's eyes, those that are powerful in the world's eyes, those that have money in the world's eyes, those that have influence in the world's eyes? Or do we seek out the lowly guests, the ones that are hurting? the ones that are rejected for one reason or another by the standards of this world, the ones that are in need, the ones that are humble and willing and open to the message of the gospel. That brings us to the third difference in the kingdom of Christ. Not only do we see them, not only do we meet them where they are, but we embrace those in need. Truly embrace them. And verses 12 to 14 Jesus looks at the guest list. He looks at the guest list of this party that this host, this ruler of the Pharisees has thrown, and he challenges and says, your guest list is unacceptable. You need to do better next time. And he goes on to say, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. Now, he's not saying it's wrong to socialize with your relatives and your friends and your neighbors. What he's saying is he's exposing, what he's doing is he's exposing the motivations of the host. The people that he welcomed to this dinner were people that could benefit him, benefit his status, benefit his well-being, benefit his comfort, benefit his pleasure. Some kind of benefit to himself has drove his guest list Everybody was there, people that could pay back to him anything that he offered to them. It was a self-centered approach to hospitality, and that's the way of the world, Jesus is saying. So he says, next time, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. The kingdom value that's being expressed here is don't only pursue relationships that benefit you that give you pleasure, that give you comfort, that give you power, that give you status. Pursue relationships for the sake of helping those in need. You know, Jesus taught this clearly back in chapter 6. In chapter 6, he's talking about enemies, our enemies. And so if what I'm about to read for you is true of our enemies, how much more is it true just of the broken and needy, oppressed captive, blind, lame people around us. Luke chapter 6, beginning of verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Even those of the world who don't know anything of the kingdom of God, don't know anything of Jesus Christ, they will love those that love them back. He goes on to say, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. If you only hang out and form relationships with those people who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even the world would do the same. The world lives by the ethic of you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. The gospel says, I will serve you because Christ has loved me. It's the guest list in your life driven by self-exaltation or by humility and compassion for those in need. What's the driving motivation? That's what Jesus is addressing at this dinner party. There should be people in your social circle that are rejected by the world, but they come to you because you accept them as they are. As another sinner just as deserving of God's wrath as you are, but just as willing to and humble to receive his grace as you are. In verse 14, Jesus reminds us that our rewards are in the eternal kingdom and not this world. That's what will enable you to make the sacrifices that you have to make to live by kingdom values is that your reward is not in this life and not in this world. Pleasure and comfort and respect in this life should not be the goal in your relationships. Instead, serving others and pointing them to Christ and that's where you find your eternal joy. Now I'm sure that some of you at least have wondered how did my church handle Joe, this prisoner who had committed child sexual abuse and was released from prison and wanted to worship with us. How did we handle it? Well, I do think that the elders, after a lot of prayer and consideration and receiving advice from others, I think we came up with a good plan. We came up with a a document for Joe to sign. And in that document, he made a commitment that he would not uh, have any direct interactions with children at church. That he would not attend activities of the church outside of worship that children were present. And he agreed to have someone with him, an elder or a deacon with him the entire time he was with the church for accountability. And it was a plan. It was hard. It was difficult. I admired Joe's willingness to sign it. But we tried to make it work. But I'm sad to say, it's, it's very sad to say that a few months into it, he left. Stopped attending. I haven't seen him since. Couldn't, wasn't able to reach him. To this day, I don't know why. It may be that he moved away. It may be that something else happened in his life, and that's why we lost contact with him. But it's a very real possibility to me that our church just didn't really receive him, that we kept him at arm's length, that we, even though he agreed to all those concessions, he was never fully accepted by the church, and he realized that after time. That's very possible to me, and it's made me sensitive to that issue ever since. Because the gospel demands that every sinner needs Jesus. And we are here to represent Jesus and his kingdom. The kingdom needs to look like this scenario that Jesus lays out for us, where the lowliest are the ones that are given the places of honor. The lowliest are the ones who are warmly accepted. We see them, we meet them where they are, and we embrace them as part of God's family There's a quote that's often repeated, but I tried this week to find the source of it, but everybody keeps borrowing it from somebody else, so you never know where it originated from. One of those kind of quotes, but I'm sure you've heard it before. It says, the test of a society is how it treats its weakest member. That's a test of your life as an individual. How do you treat the weakest people around you? It's a test of us as a congregation. How do we treat the weakest people around us and among us? usually quoted as an indictment of the country but it's a more serious indictment of any church because concern for the poor the captive the blind and the oppressed is to be the identifying characteristic of the kingdom of God earlier at the beginning of the service pastor Owen read the passage from James chapter 2 about partiality I'm just going to read it to you again after we've taken some time to consider this text because I think you'll you'll see it even more deeply what James is trying to communicate to us. James chapter 2, beginning verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. So often in scripture, the kingdom of God is presented as a great banquet. Christ is the host and he gathers his children around his table. And we're there by grace and grace alone. And we celebrate his redeeming work of us. But when you think of that image, what kind of people are gathered around the table here? Are they the, those that the world sees as having been successful? Is that the image of the church family here? That you have to really be successful in this world to be accepted? Pastor Owen lent me a book that uh, he's been reading called Disability in the Church by Lamar Hardwick. And I just pulled one quote out of it that I think is appropriate at this point. It says, the culture of the church is expressed in how the table is set, how the seats are arranged, and who receives the invitation to the table. Who has received the invitation to the table? How are they seated? How is their voice heard? What role do they play? Does it reflect the kingdom of God or does it reflect the world? The gospel teaches us that we were dead in sin. We were enemies of God we hated God we are shaking our fist at God and we are running away from him on a path to ultimate and eternal destruction and by his grace while we were still his enemies he sent his son to die for us and gave us his spirit that we might have the gift of faith and repentance that we might come to him and be adopted into his family and be heirs of his kingdom understanding that is the driving principle of your life makes you humble inherently humble And that humility will cause your life and the relationships in your life to reflect the heart of Christ. We need to view, meet, and embrace the needy people around us with that love of Christ. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy for us to think like the world thinks. This pressure is on us to conform. Every day. But Lord, you have changed our mind. You have given us a new view of the world. You've given us a new view of ourselves. And you've given us a new view of those in need. Lord, help us to become more humble. We know that when we pray for humility, we're often asking to suffer. Because it's a painful spiritual surgery to take the pride that so grips our hearts and to destroy it but lord that is what we desire give us the heart of christ for the lost give us the heart of christ for the broken and the needy and lord may this church family always well represent what the kingdom of god looks like as you describe it in your word we pray these things in jesus name amen